0: out of your mind. But Here's you know, the debate. He the debate. He You're upset. Said, They're saying, we believe you. Is this it? <laughs> this is <not laughs> I thought that... <laughs> Folks, we are back with episode number, what is it today? 160? 160. With Dr. Peter Pry, We brought him back. We had him on, what was it, two weeks, three weeks ago you were on? Two or three weeks ago?
1: Yeah, three weeks ago. Three
0: weeks ago we had you on, and by the time we were done, I said, I want you back because uh, I don't think two hours was enough. For some of you guys that didn't get a chance to watch the first one, he is uh, one of the world's leading experts in weapons of mass destruction and EMP's executive director of task force on national and homeland security a congressional advisory board dedicated to achieving protection of the United States from electromagnetic pulse, cyber attacks, mass destruction, terrorism, and other threats, critical civilian infrastructure on an accelerated basis. Last time when we spoke, we talked a lot about uh, the motive for Russia versus Ukraine. We talked about you know, uh, uh, how, you know know what can an EMP really do, nuclear bombs, what are they capable of doing, uh, how bad can it get? How paranoid we are? We learned the word suspicious. If you remember last time, that was a new word we added to the voc- vocabulary. We learned in CIA, you, didn't, you don't need to have good eyesight to become a CIA agent. That's kind of what you whispered to us, the fact that you wanted to go in the military, but your eyesight didn't allow you. We learned a lot of different things. From the last time till today, things are changing very quickly right now. Mm-hmm. What has changed with Russia and Ukraine that you are, fo- I'm sure you're following the story very closely. What's changed in the last three weeks?
1: Well, the uh, as the situation gets worse uh, for for the Russians, uh, you know, I'm I'm afraid it move, may move us closer and closer to the edge, you know, of that nuclear precipice. Uh, Putin is getting, even though uh, Russia is an authoritarian state, uh, you know, he has lots of different advisors from the military, from the intelligence services. Uh, the services, the military services, compete with each other, and uh, and and they're probably making recommendations for a, a wide variety of options, nuclear and non-nuclear options, uh, for Putin to execute. And uh, uh, it, the longer the conventional war appears to go against Russia, uh, the more likely it becomes that one of these options will be executed. And... Uh, there's a broad and deep consensus uh, among the American strategic community, even among people who have been very anti-nuclear. For example, anti-nuclear activists who work for the Middlebury Institute of International Relations in Monterey, who are – you know pr- have been pretty notorious for their anti-nuclear views, are saying that, well, you know, the Russians may well uh, execute uh, some kind of a limited nuclear attack in Ukraine. And they uh, published an article – Uh, within the past couple of weeks, talking about what those nuclear options are. You know, one of them is an atomic demonstration, a nuclear demonstration of a Novia Zemlya, the Russian test site up in the Arctic Ocean, where they would light a a nuclear weapon off in the atmosphere, which hasn't been done since the early 1960s, as a demonstration that Russia is serious about going nuclear. Another option, and I was very pleased to see that they... They mentioned this was an EMP attack on Ukraine. Even the Monterey Institute Anti-Nuclear Left is taking the EMP threat seriously. That they would do an EMP attack on Ukraine, which would fry the electronics across Ukraine. You know, disable the Ukrainian army, and that would create conditions where the Russian army could now win. You know, because the Ukrainian army, armed forces, would be disabled, would as would the whole country of Ukraine, because their electric grid would be down. All the electronics, all the communications would be down. And a third option that they described uh, was a uh, actual uh, limited use of uh, one or a few tactical nuclear weapons on the Ukrainian army to use blast or thermal effects, you know, to blow holes in the army so their guys could pour through and uh, and uh, destroy basically the Ukrainian forces on the ground by means of of tactical. Limited tactical and nuclear strikes, and I agree that those are options that are no doubt being proposed to Putin. But I think there are other options that are, are uh, even uh, more serious that are being proposed to him. Uh, you know, I think the uh, one of the options was one of the scenarios the EMP Commission had proposed before there was Ukraine war, and that is to do an EMP attack, detonate a super EMP weapon, seventy. Kilometers high over NATO headquarters in Brussels, and this would have the effect of blacking out uh, European NATO from Ireland all the way to Ukraine, and uh, that would immediately stop uh, any uh, any arms you know going into Ukraine from from the NATO member countries would paralyze NATO. So that we would not be able to intervene in the NATO uh, in the uh, in the Ukrainian war, and it would send a signal to the United States that we had better stay out of it, or we'd be next. Uh, and there are there's a faction, uh, you know, a, I think a very influential and powerful faction mm. in, within Russia that would advocate that because there are new thinkers uh, who believe, and, and they have codified this in their military doctrine. Uh, that this kind of an attack, an EMP combined with cyber warfare, is the most revolutionary form of warfare that has ever exis- existed in history. Yeah, you know because you can at the speed of light basically take down your adversary, paralyze him, and win a war uh, almost literally at the speed of light. And it would, and the initial attack would kill very few people. You know, so it's a clean, surgical way of paralyzing your enemy uh, enemies and winning. Uh, and uh, they have the capability uh, to do that, so why not do it? And uh, they have been writing in military doctrinal uh, assessments, you know, for uh, uh, almost two decades about about doing that. So that's a faction that would be saying, you know, let a, listen to us, Vladimir. You know, let's do an EMP attack that's not just on Ukraine, but on NATO Europe, because it's going to accomplish. Who's saying this? This is coming from? Uh, this would be coming from the Russian general staff and those people who are, who specialize in in, in electric, electronic and uh, the cyber warriors. Now, let me ask the you, cyber when it warriors. comes on to super MP, when we were
0: kids... Uh, uh, I don't know uh, if you fooled around with M80s and you'd blow up an M80 and like, oh shit, that's pretty cool. And you would try to put the M80 in this thing, you would try to put it underground and see if it would blow up, anything would happen. Yeah, You would do all this stuff with M80s. And then every once in a while, one of the guys would bring something that was bigger than an M80. And you thought the reaction to the M80 was gonna be like an M80. And you know what an M80 does, right? Right. And then you put the other one that was a bigger thing, more powerful than M80 and like, holy shit, we were not ready for this, right? And some people could get hurt. How do we even test super EMPs? Like, I know North Korea uh, uh, has apparently, you said North Korea has tested super EMPs, but aren't super EMPs almost one of those things? Yeah, I see that article right there. North Korea tested a super EMP weapon that could potentially wipe out nearly the entire United U.S. population. So here's my question. How the hell do you know? How do you know that could wipe out the entire U.S. population? And how do you not know that maybe it's either worse Or weaker than what you think. This is like one of those things that's tough to test. You know, you can test it in one region that can affect a lot of different people. So how do we really know the true negative impact
1: of EMP? How bad it could be, how big it could be, or how small it could be? Oh, I think we have lots of uh, of evidence. Uh, You know, during the early 1960s, for example, uh, when we did the test over Johnson Island. In fact, we didn't even know about the EMP phenomenology. We just knew that the Russians knew about something, that some phenomena was happening because they were conducting a series of tests over Kazakhstan. They were detonating nuclear weapons of varying yield, including very small ones and very big ones in outer space, over over their own territory, over Kazakhstan, which was an inhabited part of Russia. It's a, Kazakhstan's an, an enormous area, about the size of France. And uh, and so we decided, and they were breaking the. Uh, there had been a uh, an agreement to not do atmospheric testing anymore, and they were breaking the agreement. This thing was considered so important for them to do that, and so we did a test over Johnston Island and uh, lit off a nuclear weapon in outer space, and uh, it basically knocked out the lights in Hawaii, caused automobiles to fail, knocked out radio transmission stations and things like. And Hawaii was. 1,500 kilometers away, it was just on the very edge of the field where the field is weakest. And so uh, we could see that that had uh, 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 profound effects. Uh, And we have built EMP simulators uh, uh, after we stopped atmospheric nuclear testing and exoatmospheric because this is actually being tested in outer space when when you detonate the weapon. It's not in the atmosphere. But we have these uh, uh, EMP simulators, so we can put all kinds of electronics. The commission on which I served is the last uh, really concerted effort where we did uh, the broadest and most in-depth analysis of the effects of EMP on modern electronic systems by putting all kinds of things into into simulators and frying them, Um, you know, because we know what the EMP fields will look like. You can calculate it from the gamma ray output of a nuclear warhead. It's called the Compton effect. You know, the gamma rays will will come out of the bomb. They'll knock electrons off of atoms in the high atmosphere. The uh, electrons will spin at the speed of light following the Earth's magnetic field to the horizon. And that's what makes the EMP, and it basically creates this this pulse uh, that's uh, like a, a super energetic radar wave or radio wave. Uh, you know, for a non for a normal nuclear weapon, it's 50,000 volts per meter. That means for every meter of of dimension of the target, it gets 50,000 volts injected into it. So uh, you know the 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 wires on this thing here probably are a half a meter. So this thing would get 25,000 volts injected into it at the speed of light. I'm sure it's not designed to survive that. You know. Uh, uh, if you had an automobile that was uh, you know a typical automobile might be four four meters long, so that's four times 50,000 so 200,000 volts injected into the car's electronics at the speed of light. A super EMP weapon can generate twi- twice that or more than twice that. And so you're talking about extraordinarily powerful fields. Our electronic civilization, you were, I'm answering your question in my long-winded way about how do we know? Well, we know because our electronic civilization is pretty much, almost everything is designed to operate on 120 volts or less. You know that personal that computer sitting in front of you is, probably operates on on 25 volts. You know it's uh, it steps the power down from the but the outlets in this in this area put out 120 volts. Okay, so. Things that are designed to operate on 120 volts almost certainly are not going to survive when you inject 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 volts at the speed of light into them. And we know they don't survive because we have simulated that for many decades, you know, uh, both the Department of Defense and Mm. the last, the commission on which I served, we weren't just a paper commission. You know, we were about actually testing modern electronics to see were the electronics vulnerable. We knew they would be vulnerable, but one of the questions we wanted to know is are they getting more vulnerable and and they are because microchip chip technology mm-hmm. you know uh, which is responsible for the great prosperity and efficiency of our modern electronic civilization every decade they, it gets 10 times faster operates on 10 times lower voltages okay but that also makes them every decade about 10 times more vulnerable so we're going in the direction of greater and greater vulnerability. And then, and then we have other things that we can look at. What happens when the lights go out, for example, in hurricanes or tornadoes yeah. or ice storms? What happens to society? We have lots of data to show that 24 hours after the lights go out, about when people miss their third meal, you know, the glue that holds society together starts coming unglued. And, uh, and uh, you know, when society just is very quickly disintegrating. So we do have a lot of data. It's not just theoretical. We have, uh, you know, we, we can test this stuff through simulators. It, we have seen it tested in, in the nuclear uh, detonations of the past. And we have uh, real-world experience every year from hurricanes, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina. You go back and you look at what happens to society. And this, this is just a small-scale thing when you have these blackouts that – affect regions and they're only temporary. Imagine uh, if you had you know a phenomena that would black out all of North America for a year. That's how we uh, uh, you know we tried hard to think how do you keep 330 million people alive for a year with no electricity, which means no water, no food, the food supply. We only have enough food in this country to feed 330 million people for 30 days in the big regional food warehouses. And it will immediately begin to spoil when the temperature control systems and refrigerators and stuff stop receiving electricity. You can't get the food uh, to the grocery stores, you know, because the trucks and the transport vehicles would be paralyzed. Uh, you know, there's only enough food in a grocery store at normal consumption rates to feed the local population for two or three days. How do you keep 330 million people alive for a year with no food, no water? You know, no organized government. you can't. I mean, we we tried very hard to come up with ways of doing it, including mobilizing the army to airdrop food supplies into the cities. you know, meals ready to eat. We have you know bi- a billion meals ready. To eat. It's not enough, and uh, it's not practical. That's why our recommendation was, you know, we can't afford to take an EMP hit and expect to survive. We've got to harden our critical infrastructures, protect the electric grid. Do you have kids. Of yes,
0: you have grandkids. I do. Okay, so uh, are you uh, uh, concerned or suspicious that a potential super MP could one day be, you know, uh,
1: used by an enemy of ours against us in America? That was the option. Next option, I'm thinking that Putin is getting advice on from fu- some factions because among his cyber warriors, there are others who are going to say we should go bigger than just attacking European but NATO. But a basic, fundamental question: Do you think? Are you
0: suspicious that one day that an attack like that with a super EMP could be used against America and that would impact
1: negatively your your kids, your grandkids? Do you- uh, under these circumstances yeah. in this Ukrainian war, I'm I'm very fearful that it could happen tomorrow. Okay, so how are you personally prepared for it? You know, well, we have a a little farm that's uh, all set up. You know, we're prepared to live without electricity. Uh, you know, and you own a little farm that you're you're ready for it. Yes. Okay, got it. And what kind
0: of food do you have that in case that were to happen, you know, you're ready? How many months of supply of food do you have? Because some people may be listening to this. They're they also sitting there saying, uh, you know, some who maybe have the ability to do so. You don't buy life insurance policy because you're thinking you're going to die tomorrow. You die, you buy it because if you do, you want your wife, your husband, your That's kid. Right. Okay, so, so what kind of food do you have? How much supply of food do you have? How prepared are
1: you? Very prepared, you know. While uh, we've got the ability uh, to, to to survive for years, for and years, uh, yes, uh, you know. The location of my farm is, uh, well, I'm not going to talk about where it's located, okay? But it's just a very remote, uh, remote place. It's close enough to Washington so that I can go there when I have to, uh, you know. But it's far enough away. It's one of the least populous counties in, in Virginia, so that if we were to exhaust our canned food and we've got plenty of that, that's what I would recommend. You know, stockpiling high-caloric canned food, you know, beans, chocolate, peanuts, you know, uh, uh, spaghetti, uh, all kinds of canned food because that way rodents can't get at it. And canned food will basically last forever. I mean, even though they have expiration dates on the canned food, you know, that's just for quality of appearances. In terms of the wholesomeness of the food, because it's in a vacuum, it'll basically last forever. We we recovered uh, – there was an Arctic expedition uh, that was lost uh, in the early 1800s, uh, and nobody knew what had happened to them. You know, for uh, you know, for many years. Uh, but we eventually found them. Uh, you know, more than a century after the expedition had failed, they were one of the first expeditions that were bringing canned food with, with them, and the and the food was still good. You know, uh, mm. years after uh, years after that, water is critical you know uh you know uh uh it's best to actually have a natural well you know so that you're not dependent upon uh uh you know uh, uh the the larger water infrastructure uh uh you you can make homemade filters quite easily with a garbage can and blankets and charcoal that would uh, that would uh, uh that would uh, uh refine water purify purify, purify water but uh uh, it's a good excuse for having a swimming pool, you know a twenty thousand gallon swimming pool you know and it can be one of those above ground pools that are very inexpensive. I mean this is not the kind of thing you need to be a millionaire to be able to afford. Everybody should be able to you know be survivable that'll not only could you support your family with that, but you could probably provide have a water supply that would support a whole community.
2: Do all the members of your family have something like this yes, and this is something that you encourage them to do or they've read enough of your books and material that they said all right i'm i'm convinced i gotta move on with this
1: well both either way that's uh yeah that's uh you know both because
2: they've read my stuff and been around been around me uh uh are you I'll, a doomsday prepper i hear that terminology that, all the time i see those commercials but this is what that sounds like is that would you categorize yourself as that i would
1: categorize myself as uh as uh, uh as the remnant of uh, the great generation, you know be, that's one of the things uh, you know I find it particularly annoying. You know, modern culture condemns preparedness now mm-hmm. by mocking it and calling people doomsday preppers. Okay, overly paranoid. You know, my overly... my mother and father,
2: but that's what and, they call themselves, though.
1: Well, I don't call myself that. Uh, you know, I call myself an American. I call myself a person who uh, has the character profile. That this country was originally founded by the founders, people who believe in rugged individualism and self-sufficiency, and are jealous of their freedom, uh, and don't believe in 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 uh, in trusting the government to take care of all of our needs, which is where we have become now. Uh, those who call me a doomsday prepper, I would say those who don't prepare are sheep. Uh, you know, in the kind of mentality that the founders. Uh, well, our, this country wasn't designed for sheep. Mm-hmm. It was designed for eagles. It was designed for people who believed in freedom and believed in self-sufficiency and not taking handouts. You know, my, my father's generation, uh, the generation that lived through the Great Depression and survived World War II, they had never heard of EMP. Uh, all of those people, all virtually all of them, uh, would be doomsday preppers because mm-hmm. they didn't believe in trusting the government to take care of them. They had seen government fail in war and peace. They'd seen it fail in the Great Depression. They'd seen it fail with the outbreak of World War II. They knew, uh, my father and my Uncle Joe, for example, who fought in World War II against the Nazis. My father was a sergeant. My Uncle Joe had been a private. They knew that World War II was not won by Franklin Roosevelt and General George Patton. World War II was won by tough guys like them. You know who went up against Nazi tanks that were better than ours, better armed and better led uh, Germans, and defeated them. Uh, it was their guts and blood that won World War II. And so, you know, uh, they were not, uh, you know, uh, uh, willing to trust in government. They'd seen government fail in peace during the Great Depression, and in war. And they're the ones that got us through mm-hmm. World War II. And that attitude persisted. Afterwards, that's why in the 1950s, so many Americans were digging bomb shelters. You know, we laugh at that today and seem to mock it today, but they were really concerned that government would screw up again and would have a nuclear war, and they wanted to survive and make sure their family would survive. You know, we lived on a quarter acre, and, uh, you know, we had uh, orchards, uh, you know, apple trees, a a garden. My mother was constantly canning food. They had never heard of EMP, but they were concerned that there would be some disaster, maybe an atomic war. Was that more common back then than today? Do you think that was more of a common uh, etiquette? Uh, 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 It was a common value of all Americans, beginning with the founding of this country, because those virtues that we're talking about here, the self-sufficiency, the rugged individualism, the pride, it was a point of pride that you wanted to be able to take care of your own family and not depend on a neighbor and certainly not depend on a church or a government to take care of you. You wanted to be able to take care of your yeah. neighbors yourself. And yeah, your I, 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 have
2: a, I have a slight and pushback, if, if, you, if I may. Sure. There's something you talk about is something that's great in theory, but that's great in practice with you 100 percent on rugged individualism, taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, being self-sufficient, limited government, a thousand percent on the same page. However, I also am a personal finance expert. I also know that 80 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. I understand that people are, you know, have budgets. I understand that inflation is at eight percent. It's going all time high. Gas is expensive. Um, cost of living is expensive. So if I'm I'm like, all right, Dr. Pry, I'm with you. I'm ready to go get a farm in Virginia or a place in the Everglades or something. How do you take that theory and put it into practice if you're making 50 grand a year or you're making 100 grand a year, or even if you're a multimillionaire, what percentage of your budget should you be putting towards getting a a bunker or something like that? Because it's great in theory, amazing. Of course, everyone should have a bunker, but well, who's actually doing it? And that's what I'm grappling with right now.
1: About three percent of the population is actually doing it right now, and that's a shame. You know, because of what it reflects this passing of what we would call the pioneer values. The values that we're talking about here are what made America great and free in the first place. And most Americans, up until my father's generation, the Great Generation, had those values and were prepared. And they weren't making a hundred thousand a year. My father was making less than 50000 a year, but they were prepared for anything. And, uh, you know, have you ever heard of a victory garden? I mean, that was com- very common during World War II, and, uh, and uh, people made them on their, on their own. Uh, I remember in my Uncle Joe, he owned a bar down in Utica, New York, and he had a tiny little backyard. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was the size of a living room. What is a victory garden? It's a it's a it's a it's a cultivated. Hey, Wikipedia says
0: it's a war garden or food gardens for defense, vegetable, where vegetables, uh, vegetables, fruit and herbs are planted at private residences and public
1: parks in the United States, UK, Canada, interesting. Yeah, in World War II, almost everybody had a victory garden, and they and they would grow their own food. Everybody, anybody. That's,
2: that's in a time where people were living in the suburbs, you had all this land. Now, majority no, of my, Americans are in New York City, in LA, in Chicago, downtown Miami. My, my Uncle Joe was There's living- There's no places like
1: this. My Uncle Joe was living in the middle of Utica, New York, okay, and as I was explaining to you, uh, there, the, the, the backyard behind his bar, was mm-hmm. maybe the size of a living room.
2: Where's Utica, at, at, New York, though?
1: Utica, New York, is in cent- upstate New York. Okay, so Up what happens if I
2: lived in New York City?
1: There. You know, well, if you live in New York City, you do what you can. You might want to think about: uh, Do you have friends who live in the country? But here's what I would: say. If I can
2: jump yeah. in here, here's do what, you what I would have. Say.
0: Water. Uh, <clears throat> what percentage of America do you think needs to own a life insurance policy?
2: I mean, anyone with kids or a business.
0: Okay, only fifty-four percent do. 46% don't, right? Yeah. Some of them can't do it. Some of them cannot do it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what percentage of rich people here live on the water? There's people that are yeah. waterfront property. Most of the, a lot of these guys are your friends. Okay, they got houses in Miami, whatever, you know, beachfront, mm-hmm. intercoastal, whatever, maybe. Okay, great. Uh, those guys are probably not going to have a nuclear, you know, bomb shelter with victory gardens in a backyard where they're living at. But when a hurricane happens, what do they do? What happens when a hurricane happens?
2: They've got, uh, well, either they leave town.
0: Okay. What happens? I've never been part uh, of a hurricane inside. The (laughs) other day, the weather was pretty crazy. What happened? But when a hurricane happens, what do most people do in Florida? They put up their
2: shutters and they just buckle down. Or
0: some of them drive up, right?
2: They get out of Dodge.
0: Okay, they get out of Dodge. So this isn't for 100% of people. Mm -hmm. The way I'm processing this, it's not for 100% of people. And to be honest with you, it let's just say you don't have a lot of money as a family.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What I would do it in some like this to prepare for it is I would have the family collectively decide to get one. Look, uh, you, you, your uh, religion, your faith is what? You're, you're, you Jewish. grew up Jew, Judaism, right? I'm a Christian, right? I don't know what, uh, uh, what you grew up with yourself. I grew up around a lot of Mormons. Mm-hmm. I was in an insurance company, lots of guys there were Mormons. LDS. LDS, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that was very fascinating about the Church of Mormonism, okay, is they prepared their people a lot. I don't know how it is with Judaism. hmm
2: but I would There's go. There's nobody more suspicious and paranoid than Jews. Okay, so then so then, just know that. But
0: but then but then but how far do they take that? Because at Mormons that I went with, many of the people that were leaders, stake presidents, all this other stuff, mm-hmm. they had in their homes. They were ready. That was one of the things that was very consistent. Is this is in Utah? No, not in Utah. It wasn't in Lodi, California. It was in, you know, LA. It they was in basements? they, they had they were fully prepared for that in case I'm in Atlanta. Like and I'm talking like in Cumming's Georgia, and not like, you know, mm-hmm. they were ready for something like that. And these are not people. These are people that are like, "Hey, if something happens, we're ready for it." This doesn't mean you go be to, you know, a place that's very exotic and all this other stuff. It's just something you build. By the way, can you pull up what what I just sent you? Check this out. Uh, Peter, uh, Dr. Pryor, I don't know if you've seen this or not. So these are 11 luxury doomsday bunkers around the world, right? I mean, this is pretty weird, a little bit flamboyant, but one of them was very interesting. Keep going lower. Keep going lower, these different designs. Okay, so this one's a little bit too much. Fine. This one's in Europe, fully, okay, uh, uh, yeah, that looks like Survival that one movie condo. with uh, – what was that one movie with that one uh, comedian years ago from Encino, man? What's the guy's name? Polly Shore, Shore? Biodome. It looks like the Biodome. <laughs> keep going. Pat just busted Survival out Survival the Keep going. Watch this Pride. one. Watch this one here. Watch this one here.
2: That's insane. That's
0: insane to me. It's going down. It's not going up. Going so, down. it's so got the penthouse, 15 floors. So the penthouse there would be the bottom floor. Think about that. PH
2: negative like, 15. Keep going down,
0: keep going down, keep going down. Trident Lake – not familiar with this area, but there you go. That's another spot. Las Vegas underground shelter, doomsday bunkers. Look at this one. They got a pool there. They got a little house. Keep going down. The aristocrat. They got game rooms. Keep going lower. The safe house. Keep going lower. Keep going lower. Keep going lower. Okay, that one, that one apparently goes up. So those, those gates come up. This almost looks like from the movie Purge, by the way. Or I Am Legend. Or I am legend. Yes, yes. That's right. Keep going, keep going a little bit more to see a couple other ideas. Okay, this is pretty interesting. This is bunk bed. So that's like a military model. Uh, Keep going lower, keep going lower. Makes a point. Lower, 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 lower. Interesting shelters at the bottom. This is in West Virginia. Global seat. Wow, that's go up a little little bit. Where's that at? Where's that at? Global seat vault to doomsday bunkers. Huh. That's very interesting. Go a little lower in Norway. That makes sense. We got Kai that would, he would be prepared for something like that. So Dr. Pry, to go back to, uh, uh, somebody's listened to this and you said 3%, okay? To be in the top 3%, you have to make 250 a year, 200 a year. That's what the 3% makes. Because 1% is around $450, 500 20% is in six figures. 3% you're around 250 a year to be able to afford something like this, right? Never take yeah. What what are some places uh I following up with your uh, meeting that we had. I called a few friends. okay, who are, you know, uh, to see what they would say. One of the guys I called on who I'm going to have on the podcast if he feels comfortable about it, he'll talk about it. He said, "Yeah, absolutely. I got I got to spot myself and I'm ready for it." He says, "Do you know your favorite podcast you've done all year? You know which one it is?" He's asking me. I said, "No, who is it?" He says, it's Dr. Peter Pry. You know how many people I've shared that with? I said, I don't know. And by the way, this is a guy that's a very well-known guy. The people know who this guy is. He says, that's a podcast everybody should watch because most people are not ready for it. I said, okay, now what, to, to you know, put it in context, he's in his late 60s, early 70s, so he's living in a different phase of his life. But he said he's got a place in South Carolina. What are some of the common places that you're aware that people are buying you know, uh, nuclear shelters or,
1: you know, doomsday shelters, whatever they call them. Is it specific or it's general? It can be anywhere. I want to push back. Please. On this idea that the preppers we're talking about, that the 3% that we're talking about are are the 3% of the wealthiest Americans. That's not true. The 3% who are preppers, uh, you know, include are probably mostly people of the middle class and even lower income uh, brackets, you know, that do that. I suspect there are more of them because I think there's more common sense among the middle class and working class people than there is among the millionaires and the billionaires. You know, I
2: actually don't disagree with you. I can see them being a little more paranoid than someone who's super successful.
1: Common sense, and, and it doesn't. Call, well, uh, also people who live in rural areas, and uh, you know, there are a lot of Americans who supplement their income by hunting. Okay, to get protein because meat is so expensive. These are people who are still from that. They still have those pioneer virtues, okay, that we were talking about that used to be the virtues and the values that all Americans used to have up until about a generation ago when we started changing and becoming more trusting of the government and expecting government to take care of us. There are a lot of Americans, you know, from working class and middle class backgrounds that still have the old-fashioned virtues that they inherited from their parents' generation, as did I. You know, my father taught us to hunt and fish. He had never heard of EMP. EMP. You know, but uh, he did that because he had fed his family through the Great Depression by hunting woodchucks and fishing. And so that was part of preparedness. It's not just recreation. Uh, Similarly, now, anybody, uh, you know, uh, even people on a modest income can do something to prepare, you know, stockpile food, stockpile, you know, it doesn't cost a lot of money to stockpile, uh, you know, canned beans are very inexpensive, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of. Foods that are out there that are very inexpensive. The more you stockpile, the better off you are. Have a medicine kit and know how to use it. Exercise some common sense. If you live in the middle of New York City, you know might, you might want to think about, you know, uh, where are there still places that have the old 1950s civil defense signs? You know, what is the what building has the deepest basement? You know, so so that if I was concerned about a fallout, and I don't want to stress that, uh, you know, we're so terrified about. Radioactive fallout. Actually, there's probably not going to be a lot of radioactive fallout, and that's probably not as big a threat as uh, as people are worried about, because uh, the cities are probably not going to be attacked. You know, uh, the adversary uh, would make a counterforce attack. Maybe we should be talking a little about the basics of nuclear strategy to educate people about what they're going to uh, uh, what they're going to face. Uh, you know, basically, uh, the Worst case, one of the worst case scenarios, and one of the, and this is a scenario I think that is being advocated to Putin right now as well. We didn't really talk about all the factions that are out there, but uh, uh, you know, another faction are people who still uh, believe in uh, Field Marshal Vladimir Sokolovsky's uh, approach that was written in the 1960s, and that, and that any nu- any war, any uh, you know, uh, any use of nuclear weapons. Is going to escalate to an all-out war, so you might as well launch a preemptive first strike against all your adversaries, you know, and take out the nuclear forces of Britain and France and the United States to win the nuclear war right off the bat, and go big. If you're going to go nuclear, mm-hmm. you go big, you know. This is the Sokolovsky theory, and uh, and I'm sure there are still people advocating that. That's why they've built up a first strike capability with their strategic rocket forces. And that's one of the reasons Putin has been talking about the Satan II recently, which is their new first strike weapon, okay? They've still got the Satan I, which is very effective. You know, it could destroy probably well over 95% of our ICBM silos. But a Russian counterforce attack, there are two kinds of attacks we think of in nuclear strategy. One is a counterforce attack, where you're trying to disarm your adversary by destroying his nuclear forces. And then there's the countervalue attack. Where you go after cities and industrial areas and the population centers, almost certainly, you know they would, uh, if they went big and and the Sokolovsky faction uh, wins out, they would be they would they would uh, execute the counterforce attack. Uh, you know they don't want to attack cities initially in that first wave because you want to hold the cities hostage to force your adversary to surrender. And so, what do they need to attack our, our, to execute a counterforce attack? They can do it with 500 warheads. This is the equivalent of 50 Satan I. 50 Satan I ICBMs could deliver 500 highly accurate uh, nuclear weapons that would destroy the 440 ICBM silos and launch control facilities, the three strategic bomber bases, and the two ballistic missile submarine bases, and that would destroy. Almost all of our nuclear weapons, except for those that are on the ballistic missile submarines at sea, you know, on patrol, typically we have a third to a half of the submarines at sea on patrol. It's more like a third these days because the Ohio-class submarine is so old, Uh, you know, and that's about, you know, about 400 weapons that we would have out there at sea, you know, that we would have surviving. Now, what are you going to do with those 400 weapons? Go attack empty ICBM silos in Russia, vacant bomber bases, Ballistic missile submarines that are no longer in port on their side, impervious deep underground shelters, and then you'll have no nuclear weapons at all left after you've used up those four hundred, and that will leave our cities open and exposed to attack, and we would have, we would have no recourse but to surrender or see our population destroyed. Uh, you know the logical thing will. The reason we have the ballistic missile submarines on patrol is they are a secure reserve. They're not supposed to be used except to deter the adversary from attacking our cities. So that attack, you see, that'd be basically be, uh, be able to, to uh, if you pull that off and destroy our forces, it would leave them free to commit aggression against our allies and have their way with the rest of the world uh, and threaten our adversary cities and conquer the world that way. Uh, except the United States would, uh, you know, would be saving our cities and uh, and uh, at least be be safe for the time as long as we had those that handful of submarines on patrol out there. So that's how the logic of how a nuclear force would work. And because they're trying to limit collateral damage to the civilian population, the survival of our civilian population is an important strategic asset to them. The they don't want to maximize casualties. They want to Limit the casualties. Their object is destroy those ICBMs and their silos, which are all located in very low population areas. By the way, the ballistic, the uh, same thing with the uh, the air force bases. There's only three of them, and they would do things like uh, uh, do uh, low altitude bursts when you're using your nuclear weapon because this is this maximizes the overpressure, the blast effect, which is what destroys an ICBM silo or destroys a bomber base, but. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the uh, blast effect, there's, it's called an optimum burst height. Okay, The higher up you go, the bigger that and, and more effective that blast wave is. And this happens to be good from the perspective of limiting collateral damage to the civilian population uh, because as long as the fireball doesn't touch the ground, you're not going to get any or, or very little nuclear fallout and radioactivity. So the counterforce attack will not generate a lot of fallout and radioactivity. So people don't have to have nuclear bunkers, or or even worry about uh, you know going into some deep basement in New York City. If you happen to live in New York City, those would that's it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to scout that out. I'm not saying you shouldn't have nuclear bunkers. I mean that's a if you can afford it, that's great. But what I am saying is that for the average person, or even people that don't have a lot of money. There is a lot of things you can do. Little inexpensive things that would significantly increase your such survival. As, such as such as storing food. You know, uh, putting aside maybe one percent of your budget. How ma- how many uh, how much canned food can you put away? Uh, having a water supply. Having a medicine kit and knowing how to use it. Uh, do you have friends who have a place in the country so that you might be able to work out a Survival plan with them where you're going to be able to get to them somehow how big is your shelter that you have I'm not asking
0: specifics but it's something that can it fit 15 people or family members or I don't have an underground shelter oh you don't have an underground no. shelter okay I used to in my place in Maryland but this is a new
1: uh, uh, you know so you're a little bit more optimistic right now than you used to be <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say that I'd, I'd say' I'm, I'm, I'm less optimistic but I'm uh, it's not a question of uh, of, of optimism. But uh, the... Uh, then the, why don't you have one? You know, well, because I think that that's the last thing you really need. You know, I'd rather put the money into stockpiling food, raising chickens. You know, uh, you know I don't think radioactive fallout, uh, you know, b- b- bunkering yourself. Uh, I think this is based on a myth. I just explained how a counterforce attack would work. No, no, I, I totally get what you said. I, I, I get
0: what you said. And you yeah. you, you, you actually... I'm hoping Putin doesn't watch his podcast because your other podcast was translated into Russian and our Russian channel. That's got a few hundred thousand subscribers. Mm-hmm. But uh, so what I'm asking you is the following. So you in your mind, this is how I process it. Feel free to push back. If you don't have a shelter at this point of your life and you are probably wealthier today that you can afford it versus when you used to be in Maryland today, you could probably get a shelter if you wanted to is it because you think it's more likely for us to have a super EMP attack before a nuclear attack is that kind of oh, how I, you p- I think it's much
1: more likely that we would have a super EMP okay, attack okay that's why a cyber attack and that that faction you know is arguing for Vladimir Putin's ear and trying to get him to listen to them instead of going to i got you know, you. A nuclear war yeah so so okay so but, so but, but but my but the reason I don't have my shelter anymore is, has not because I'm more optimistic today. I don't have my shelter because the Obama administration punished me for criticizing their national security policies and canceled my defense contracts, okay? So I couldn't afford my farm in Maryland and the, and the state of Maryland in 2008, raised the taxes on people who had farms so high that, that people who had been living there for 300 years – had to sell their farms. And is give that them. literally the reason why yes, you don't have? That it? is the reason. If I, if I, if I had not, uh, if I had not had to give up my farm in Maryland, I would definitely still have it today. I had a shelter in that farm that could have survived a uh, a one megaton attack, attack happening relatively close by. Uh, you know, the house was designed to survive that, and it was a a better setup. But you know, I ended up uh, like a lot of people. You know, uh, coming out. Of that so that I uh, you know I'm not as prosperous today as I used to be thanks to the Obama administration and uh, you know and financially I never came back to that so I'm doing the best I can I'm not a rich guy I'm doing the best I can with what I what I've got I'm very uh, I'm satisfied uh, you know with uh, with what I've with what I've done we've uh, uh, this new farm where we're setting up uh, you know is actually further away from Washington because I'm less optimistic that Washington isn't going to get nuked, you know, than I was before. You know, I've moved my family to a, a, what I think is a safer safer location. Got it. So before, the closer you are to Washington, safer you are. Now you're thinking the further you are from Washington, the safer you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I never thought that the closer you were, the safer you were. I always thought that the closer you were to Washington, the more in danger you are. You know, uh, that that's a... Uh, uh, you know, that's- President a, Biden doesn't make you feel safe? No, no, he doesn't. Nor does uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Niley, You know, I think we've got one of the least competent and most dangerous administrations where nuclear war is concerned that, uh, that we've ever had. Uh, you know, they, they genuinely believe that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And uh, that's patently untrue, uh, but it emboldens them to take risks that previous more responsible administrations would not take you know i think their whole ukraine policy is based on the fact that there's a lot of people in the biden administration that really think oh putin agrees with us that a nuclear war cannot be fought and it cannot be won and must never be fought and therefore we can we can go as far as we want in ukraine we can push ukraine uh, putin out of power and and prevail over russia at a conventional level in Hmm. Ukraine, and we won't have to worry about a nuclear war because Putin isn't crazy, and he understands that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. That is false. That's a very dangerous assumption. But the people in charge of us now, in charge of our national security, actually believe that.
2: What did uh, the previous administration under President Trump, how did you feel? But you said you don't feel very safe under Biden or or General Milley under Trump and his his administration. Did you feel any different?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I felt a lot uh, uh, a lot more safe. Uh, uh, you know, if only because of Trump's personality. Uh, you know, he was no fool. Uh, he, he didn't say things like you know, nuclear war cannot be won and must never never be fought. Uh, his uh, nonetheless, even under President Trump, uh, okay, the president would make certain claims that weren't true. Uh, you Such know. as what? Well, for example, that America, uh, uh, that our military has never been stronger, and we're better prepared now than we ever have been. That's not true. Because he had been increasing defense budgets. It takes a long time. Uh, uh, un- President Trump was doing the right things. I mean, he was investing money in the n- in modernizing our nuclear triad. Okay, but under President Trump, uh, uh, you know, one would get the impression that we spent all this defense money that therefore our triad was stronger and better it, it, it wasn't you know uh, all of the all of the nuclear submarines and bombers and missiles and all of the warheads on all of those systems are 30 40 years old they go back to the Reagan administration and president Trump didn't change that uh, you know it's going to take a long time to modernize the triad uh, it's and the we're not going to get new systems coming online until a decade from now, into the 2030s, okay? Uh, now, I'm not criticizing President Trump for making those statements. I think as the president, it was important for him to make those statements because nuclear deterrence in a lot of ways is based on a big bluff, you know? Uh, you know uh, by him saying things like that and asserting that and threatening our adversaries, uh, they didn't know what to make of him. Uh, I actually think that his personality, that strong patriotic personality, that potential unpredictability—what would word Trump I was do? About to say, yeah. uh, you know, unpredictability. Uh, de- oh, yeah, that's de- powerful.
2: Deterred them. Okay, some, some people might call it um, erratic, though.
1: Well, uh, when you know, when you're facing a situation where the adversary has all these advantages, you know, uh, anything that deters them and makes them pause. Uh, You know, is a good thing, including er, er, that erratic behavior. So if he's
2: unpredictable, a.k.a. erratic, you know, interchangeable interchangeable in some capacity, regardless, the enemy doesn't know what to make of it. Is that what you're saying?
1: The enemy could, uh, you know, would have – the enemy would not – was not confident, I think, under President Trump that this guy – might not himself launch a nuclear first strike if he thought that yeah. America was endangered. One could easily see President Trump doing anything necessary to defend the United States, well, including striking first, and that scared them. The crap so out that, of them. So, so, yeah. so that they they were uh, more. That's why they didn't invade Ukraine. But think about this question: under, What is under the under opposite of unpredictable?
0: Give me another word. So Level headed. <laughs> no it's not no type in unpredictable synonym level-headed <laughs> what unpredictable what what is so it's it's a very well, simple word well, just predict- take the un out predictable. Predictable. the opposite of unpredictable it's is predictable, predictable. Yeah, that's it's predictable. i mean and i'm not even american I, mean, I wasn't born here the opposite of predictable is uh, unpredictable it's predictable and when it comes down to war the last thing you want to be is what predictable here's what's crazy isn't it crazy that the guy that the world thought was going to start World War III, the world was at peace, and the guy that thought that was going to bring world peace is created the world into mayhem. Everybody thought Biden was going to bring a lot of peace. It's been a shit show when it comes down to safety, and everybody thought Trump was going to bring war. The only place it was a shit show was on Twitter Okay, when, when, when he was here. Uh, to me... Um, uh, okay, so let's. Uh, if you have a follow up, I can go with other questions if you don't have a follow up for him. Did you have a follow up question on that topic? On or Trump not? or yeah. on what? So then let me continue. So I would go to this with you. Um, so, you know, historically, which political party typically likes war? It's fine. Well, which, historic, which which I, political I, I, party?
2: Are you saying the Republicans, the Warhawks? What, would typically I'm
0: asking like war? you, what would you say historically? I, I, hopefully,
2: neither party likes no, war. No, that's
0: not true, though. That's not true historically. Republicans. Okay, so people will typically say, you They're know, Warhawks. when it when it comes down to it, the Republican Party is like fiending war. Like even if you watch the movie Vice, the way they build Dick Cheney and you know what he did mm-hmm. to get all those contracts. Okay, right. cool. Iraq, so I Iraq, mean, all of that. Yeah. Now, if Bush. you go back, if you go back to Bush, uh, can somebody say, "Well, that was true, that was the case, right?" There was a lot yeah. of war. Okay, well, if you go to Obama, w- do we have wars during Obama? How was under Obama you can with ISIS? Call
2: ISIS, ISIS uh, a war? Every I guess.
0: day we feared ISIS, right? I mean, ISIS was like a lot a thing. of that
2: was the media though, just like COVID. But no,
0: no, but 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 that the media is on his side. That's talking ISIS. That's his side. It's not. of the media loved and and adored Obama. So if the media is talking Mm -hmm. about it, it's real because Obama was president, not because somebody on the opposite side was president. So you can't confuse the two. And then you bring to Trump, the four years is pretty quiet. Nothing really happens. Palestine and, you know, Kushner does what he does. And then you have now Biden. So this is the question I got for you is – You're Putin, the guy that you're saying, one of his advisors, the general, hey, why don't we do a super EMP on Ukraine and maybe even NATO? You were talking about that earlier, like 40 minutes ago. Uh, And, you know, but at the same time, again, you know, let's go into the mind of Putin today. Uh, Biden just gave Ukraine $40 billion. It's public, you know, so we're going to support Ukraine. And uh, uh, Biden's become a friend of Ukraine. A lot of people on the media support that decision. They say that was a good move to be made. Uh, NATO is defending anybody against Russia, almost everybody against Russia. How is Putin sitting there saying, these guys don't fear me? Because if, if you look at that picture between these two guys, you got Trump and Putin. Okay. What do both of them have in common? both of them, if there's an area they're competing in, is which man is more unpredictable to impose fear, okay? Would you agree with that? Both of them are, in a way, unpredictable, right? Now, you want the guy that's unpredictable to be on your side. The guy that's unpredictable that's not on your side, you don't like that. But if the guy is unpredictable and he's on your side, you're good with that. Both of these guys are unpredictable. How is an unpredictable Putin process, $40 billion being given to Ukraine, and public humiliation, and he's sitting there saying, well, you know, maybe we'll take a little bit more. Maybe they're going to finally figure out that I'm a good guy. And what do you think he's thinking right now? How much more can he sit there and keep taking all the support that Ukraine is getting rather than leaving that alone?
1: Okay. Before I answer that question, yeah. I'd just like to clarify what I said about President Trump before, because I'm a Trump admirer. I don't want that being misconstrued. You know, we had started off, you know, you know, because... I don't want it misunderstood that I was criticizing President Trump when I said, "Well, he said that our military was the strongest in the world, when that was not so." Okay, uh, it is the case that if you look at our forces and what was done, you know, there's no way that in the four years of the Trump administration we could have gone, we could have modernized our nuclear forces so so quickly. Uh, uh, you know, it wasn't true that we had the strongest military in the world. Our nuclear forces certainly were still far behind and our military forces were not prepared yet to fight a a peer competitor at a conventional level. Uh, You know, but I support President Trump saying those things because he's the president. What is he supposed to say? Oh, our nuclear forces are uh, are, are far inferior to those of Russia, but I'm spending money and I hope that in 30 years we can catch up with them. That wouldn't be a prudent thing for a president to say. A president has always got to say, we're the strongest, we're the best, we can beat anybody. So you know, from a military, technical, analytical point of view, uh, you know, uh, those things weren't, weren't literally true. But in terms of what presidents are supposed to do, yes, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad President Trump is saying that. He's not just communicating to the American people. All the bad guys in the world are listening to him. And if they had the sense that, oh, this guy is admitting publicly that America is weak, you know, you don't want to do that. Biden, in effect, is doing this now uh, when he decides – uh, you know that uh, that we're going to cancel despite, over the protests of all of over the Pentagon. You know that he's defunded the slick N, the sea launched cruise missile nuclear. It was our only hope to catch up with Russia in terms of our tactical nuclear weapons. And he's also canceled the B eighty three nuclear bomb. You know, which is the only weapon that uh, it's the our last megaton class weapon that had some kind of a chance of driving a shock wave that could destroy command bunkers in Russia. And he canceled that in the middle of this profound nuclear crisis over Ukraine. What kind of signal is that sending them? It tells them that he's afraid of nuclear weapons or indifferent to the nuclear balance to such an extent that even in this, you know, he's 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 defunding and canceling some of our best weapons. So having said that, how does P- Putin processing $40 billion uh, sent to Ukraine? Well, uh, you know, we know how he's processing it. Uh, he's basically telling his people uh, uh, that, uh, that the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, is not just a war against Ukraine, but the that Ukraine is a proxy war being waged by the United States and NATO against Russia, uh, and uh, and he and he's basically saying, you see, I was right to invade Ukraine, even though things aren't going well. I was right uh, because Ukraine, in effect, is a de facto member of NATO, and these guys are planning to use the uh, uh, Ukraine to try to destroy Russia. They're doing it now, mm. uh, you know. Uh, this all this nonsense that we didn't have to worry about U- NATO in Ukraine yeah. is proven false because they're basically che- treating Ukraine as a de facto NATO member. Now they're still afraid of, enough afraid of us because of our nuclear capabilities that they're not willing to directly engage Russian troops, uh, you know, uh, there. But we this just proves that I was right and that we have to prevail in Ukraine because this poses an existential threat. Uh, in effect, we're in World War III right now. A World War III is being waged against Russia via uh, via Ukraine as a, pro- a proxy war, and uh, the Russian people are listening to this. You know, Putin is far more popular among the Russian people now than uh, than uh, Biden is among the American people. You know, he has tremendous uh, support for prosecuting that uh, that war and winning it. And uh, I think, as I as we discussed in the last program, what is Putin going to do? Uh, uh, you know, we don't, the fog of war is so thick over Ukraine, you know, we don't really know, you know, just how bad is the situation for Russia and for Putin internally. We're, almost all the information we're getting is coming from the Ukrainians on the battlefield and from a Biden administration that wants to make the Russians look as bad as possible, you know, because Biden doesn't want the narrative to be about, biden throwing away 60 years of u.s national security credibility on the international stage when he drew that line in the sand and told putin do not invade ukraine and then russian tanks rolled right over it you know he doesn't want the conversation biden administration doesn't want the conversation to be about that they want it to be about how badly the russians are doing allegedly doing maybe in reality doing so badly uh you know uh in in uh, in, in ukraine and and therefore uh uh, you know, the politics are not so bad for Biden if, if, from that from that perspective. But, but go, go to proxy wars. Aren't proxy wars supposed to be like people don't
0: know you're doing a proxy war or else it's not a proxy war? If it's public, it's no longer proxy. You're taking sides. So do you understand what I'm saying when I say, so So let's just say if US, you are saying US is doing a proxy war using Ukraine against Russia, US is r- Ukraine. Versus when sometimes the, they would use Iraq, Iran, they would use these surrounding countries and behind closed doors they're supporting one of the countries, but not everybody knows about it. That's the right way to do proxy, not a public
1: proxy war. Well, it depends how you define a proxy war. There have been, are proxy wars where a country will want it be, to be done clandestinely uh, so that it can, will have plausible deniability. Uh, for example uh, Iran's support of the Houthis in Yemen is 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 a a proxy war like that Mm -hmm. where they say we're not supporting the Houthis all of this stuff is uh, you know even though they're supplying arms and uh, the North Koreans are in there too Hel- uh, helping them with uh, Saudi the Arabians scud, uh, uh, To scud missiles Right against Saudi Arabia. But
2: that's very well known You're saying that was Supposed to be clandestine At the ever. time though
1: At the time Well they Afterwards, still Afterwards it's but I well feel kn- like
2: There's a lot of proxy wars That are out in the open I mean look at what's going on In Gaza, Israel yeah. I mean Palestine, no. Iran Everyone I mean that's very the, well known
1: The Vietnam Libya, War Libya, Vietnam Okay The Vietnam War uh, The Soviet Union I think the intention the... Is
2: what you're saying Is to yeah, I, keep I, it on the DL no, but, but everyone if you, finds if out eventually If you're
0: doing it The way we're 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 doing it. We're not like just supporting Ukraine. We're anti-Russia. We are anti, like we are Ukraine. Yeah, but so is the
2: entire EU, not just United States. I
0: totally agree. But what I'm saying here is this is not the proper way of doing a proxy work.
2: Well, just say,
0: just say. We, we are going to defend these guys because we're not going to do anything to work with Russia. We're not going to have a conversation with Russia to try to figure out a way to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, eliminate this war, slow down the war or pray, play synergists to say, listen, can we figure out a way to make this work? No, we don't even want to do that. You know, he's the next this, and you saw when Biden one time, we have to get rid of him, and then they slip up, and then they come back and correct him. That was, yeah. what, three, four months ago when he said that? I remember. He only says that because that's talked about behind closed doors. You don't say that and have a slip-up if it's not something that's being talked about. People don't have slip-ups like that. So it's no longer proxy, in my opinion. I get what you're saying when a proxy is using somebody else to go to it. It's wide open right now, and Putin knows it. So if, if, you're, if you ever thought about negotiating with Putin and saying Putin— but we're trying to make this work and we want to figure out a way to compromise. This is not fair. We're losing, you know, people are dying. Innocent kids are being, you know you don't want that on your you know, hands. That, that's on you. Nope, that argument is done. Putin's not going to sit down with you and negotiate today because, and if he does, everything you say, he doesn't believe anything that comes out of
1: your mouth. Am I wrong? I, I think you might be wrong. Okay. Okay. I hope I'm Because we haven't tried to explore that. Uh, you know, uh, before Russia invaded Ukraine, and, and I won't quibble over whether it's a proxy war or not. I mean, I I I think one can argue that it is a proxy war in the sense that Russian and U.S. troops are not directly engaged with each other, and that's what I mean when I'm talking about a proxy war. It's and that's a good what, thing, and that's what most people. Yeah, that's a that's a good thing, uh, you know. Uh, but I, I I I also agree with you that you know, certainly from the Russian perspective and. Uh, From the NATO perspective, in terms of what we're saying publicly and all the rest, our objective does seem to be, uh, you know, uh, to try to achieve regime change in Russia through the Ukraine. I mean, Senator Lindsey Graham, for example, you know, has called, uh, uh, you know, for uh, providing no exit for Russia out of this and that we're going to stay in this thing to the end. And there are some analysts expecting extraordinary results uh, you know, from this, that, uh, for example, that Putin could fall from power, that we could force the Russians to give up all their tactical nuclear weapons, uh, that Russia will have to return all of the conquered territories uh, uh, from, from Ukraine, which I think is uh, unrealistic and extremely dangerous to expect those outcomes. And this from people who – before the invasion happened, was expecting Russia to run over Ukraine in 72 hours. You know, when your intelligence is so wrong, you know, that ought to give you pause about whether you should be involved in the war Mm. when your intelligence is so wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, because I I, I think it's wrong again, having these very unrealistic expectations. But um, the Russians offered a peace treaty, a six-point peace treaty, before they invaded Ukraine. And uh, I I have argued, uh, I think... I think we could uh, win the new Cold War in Ukraine by negotiating a peace with Russia, offering to negotiate peace with Russia. Are we doing that? They, no, we're not. Why are we not doing that? Because the uh, uh, the Biden administration cl- claims they did, but they didn't seriously try to negotiate that peace, okay? Uh, you know, uh, I think that because the, uh, the Biden administration is uh, – uh, Listening to people who think that they can win uh, the new cold war against Russia by defeating Russia, uh, I think they have a very short sight. Things are going well right now in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and they want to keep pumping arms in there to make things as bad for the Russians as possible. Uh, you know, and and hope that maybe some of these really uh, extraordinary developments that they're hoping for, that might be Putin will fall from power. Uh, or at least we'll give Russia such a bloody nose in Ukraine that the Chinese will be deterred from trying to uh, invade Taiwan because the same thing will happen to them and uh and uh and that uh and that if we can use Ukraine the proxy of Ukraine to really inflict a serious defeat on the Russians that it'll uh, keep the Russians pacified and in their cage you know for years to come mm-hmm. and therefore uh th- this is uh, it's worth doing this, and it's worth taking these risks to do that. And we're not really taking risks anyway, because everyone knows a nuclear war cannot be won, and and uh, and must never be fought. And so Putin's nuclear threats are not going to be uh, are, are not are not, not going to be acted upon. And I think that that's it's a very shallow, uh, 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 dangerous. Uh, policy that we're following that assumes that Russia will not resort to nuclear or EMP or cyber warfare on a large scale against NATO, Europe, or against the United States itself in order to prevail. It's also based on the premise that, that Russia is really on the ropes in a, in, a, in, a, in a deeply serious way, and that might not be true. We don't know that that is true at all. I mean, Russia has been fighting this hand, war with one hand, you know, with its left arm, and its right arm tied behind its back. You know, they've only committed really a relatively small fraction of their forces, despite what's being said in the newspapers and all the rest. You know, they have not fully mobilized to fight, fight this war. Even John Bolton, who wants us to do what the Biden administration is doing and wants to have this war, a big war against Russia, even John Bolton is talking about, well, you know, we need to be prepared to fight a war against Russia. He's calling it the 30 to 100 years war. You know, because uh, this is uh, – because Putin and not just Putin, but he believes the Russian elites that this isn't just Putin's war, but that the Russian elites who want to restore the Russian empire, that this is a main uh, – that they consider this essential, you know, to their geo long-term geopolitical survival, to reconstitute the old USSR, including taking over Ukraine, and that they are going to be willing to fight 30 to 100 years, you know, uh, in Ukraine in order to achieve that objective. And so we have to be prepared. And I think, for example, you just take that one thing. Are we going to be prepared to fight Russia for 30 to 100, 100 years in order to win the Ukraine war? How I don't much think credibility
0: so. does John Bolton have today? Aside from the fact that, you know, anytime he's willing to trash Trump, you know, the media wants to bring him on. But when you make a comment like this, what does the average person think when they read this? How much credibility do you give this guy when somebody like him writes that? Putin's thirty or hundred year war for Ukraine. Like that's what we got to do. Who's going to buy into that? By the way, can you pull up the New York Times article? You know, when when he says you know Putin's popularity is increasing, you're thinking, well, how do we know that? Uh, uh, Go to the one I just texted you. I said, is this the one? Facebook for no. Go to is this the one or no? Faced with pressure, uh, uh, is this the one? Yeah, look at that one. Go a little lower. Look what his popularity is, if you go a little lower. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Okay, second paragraph. 83% of Russians said they approve of Mr. Putin's actions, up from 69% in January. According to a poll by Lavada Center, an independent pollster in Moscow, ratings of many other government institutions as well as governing party have also gone up. This is being written by the most liberal paper in America, to say 83%, like if there's anything that would need to write a propaganda would be the fact that even the Russian people don't agree with their leader, which is Putin. So, why, And, and why, it, it is one of the most pro-Biden uh, papers in America as, as well. Paper. Yeah, far, far left. I mean, supporting anything that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal would be in the middle. This, maybe center right. These guys are far left. Why, why are the Russian people so supportive of him? Why are the Russian people so supportive of him? And at the same time, if this guy's at 83 percent, you know, Biden's right now at 39 percent. Why are the Russian people so
1: supportive of him? why are so many American people not supportive of Biden? Well, let me go to answer your John Bolton question first. I didn't want to just pass by that. Well, who would take John Bolton seriously? Uh, You know, most people in Washington would. The establishment Republicans would. uh, You know, the people who didn't like a lot of them who didn't like Trump, even those who did support Trump. I, I have, I have long been a, uh, an admirer of John Bolton, although I disagree with him on a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he he had he does have a, a, a keen analytical mind. You know, uh, uh, you know he he has uh, deep geo strategic insights into in, into matters, uh, which is why, despite his combative, personality all uh, right, that, has, uh, that often gets him in trouble in positions that he's hel- uh, held in government, that he has been respected with uh, hel- hel- held you know, high posts like that. So there are a lot of people that would take and should take John Bolton uh, seriously. Uh, now, I, uh, I, am, I am more of a Trump fan than I am of a, a, a Bolton supporter, and I fundamentally disagree with Bolton on a lot of things. I think his, uh, his analysis, for example— His recommendations, his prescription for Ukraine doesn't flow logically from his own analysis. I mean I find it impossible to imagine. I mean I think it's a certainty – that if we had tried to engage in a war for Ukraine for 30 to 100 years that we would lose you know NATO and the United States don't have the political will or we don't have national interests invested in Ukraine that are so serious that we would be willing to fight with Russia for 30 to 100 years to prevail so uh, but nonetheless that's what he wants us to do um uh we didn't have the political will to impose our our uh the outcome on Afghanistan that we wanted against the Taliban, you know, who are not nearly as formidable an adversary as uh, a, 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 as the Russians are. So, you know, there's a disconnect here. I I, I often see between a lot of what uh, you know Bolton argues. He would answer me back by saying, in in this article, he says we have to prevail in Ukraine because because Ukraine is Poland in 1939. And, uh, and if we don't prevail, you know, there's going to be a World War III, that this is going to have uh, – in fact, he does say this in the article, that the reverberations of any kind of a Russian victory in Ukraine are going to be so profound that China and North Korea and Iran and Russia itself will be encouraged to continue aggression, and we're going to find ourselves in World War III. So this is our Polish 1939 moment. We've got to step up. We've got to stop them from achieving victory. And I say to that, this is not the time and place we can win. Uh, if you don't want the, uh, a World War III, don't go into some situation where are almost guaranteed to lose. You know, we're guaranteed to lose at a conventional level because we can't fight a 30 to 100 years war. And Russia's not going to fight for a third a 100 years. They're going to use EMP, cyber, nuclear, you know, to quickly win the war. And we're not prepared for any of that. You know, we need time to rebuild, to really build and modernize our nuclear deterrent we need time to build our general purpose forces so that we can prevail in a world war III if that becomes necessary and we most especially need time to find competent political and military leadership can you imagine joe biden and general Miley leading us into a world war III? we're going to lose just based on the leadership the terrible leadership we we have now we we need we need competent political and military leadership so that we can so that we can prevail and who who wants who what what uh, uh who wants america to get
0: weaker outside of, forget about the enemies what i'm talking about is you, the name that comes up often is what what are your thoughts about uh, world economic forum you know and the world health organizations and these organizations that kind of stand alone and yeah they're here for the world and you know you'll hear the name coming up with klaus schwab and you know where he's at and what he's trying to do and you know the new world order what do you stand with
1: that when you hear that Well, the left and uh, the globalists want America to get weaker. Uh, You know, uh, that's been a divide, I think, that wasn't really appreciated until Trump came along, okay, Uh, you know, with his America First policy, which is anathema to establishment Washington. Uh, That's because these people aren't nationalists. They're globalists. Uh, They want to use American power. They want to use America as an engine to realize a, 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 a globalist uh, world order you know that's dominated by supranational institutions like the United Nations and the world courts and world economic forums and the elites who run these things will be making the decisions for us you know and uh, uh, whenever they try to encourage us and, and most of the wars that we've been fighting in recent decades have this globalist agenda, you know, uh, the war in Ukraine. The reason we're there is because we want uh, we want people to think, we want the nations to think that warfare is obsolete. That in the 21st century, you can't uh, fight wars, and you shouldn't be acting on national interests the way Russia is. Okay, uh, that you uh, that you need to subordinate your concept of national interests to this larger uh, agenda. The globalists believe. Uh, and the left, that nationalism is evil, you know, that it is responsible for the wars of the past and the way of getting to a peaceful, ordered world uh, is by subordin- subordinating nationalism and maybe evolving past it altogether, the concept of the world citizen. That's why our borders are wide open, OK, There's, uh, because that implies a nationalism. That implies, you know, uh, old-fashioned nation-states. They want open borders, uh, they want supranational institutions running everything, and uh, a lot of the wars that don't make sense to most Americans, because most Americans are nationalists and are right. America first, are, are, are. Are. and they say, why are we in Afghanistan? Why are we in Iraq? Uh, the rationaliza- There are rationalizations that are concocted uh, to appeal to them and say, well, we're in Afghanistan because of the war on terrorism. Because we don't want the bad guys to come and attack the United States again from Afghanistan, and that was the ra- rationalization there, and the rationalization for going into Ukraine, our involvement in Ukraine is well, we don't want Russia and China, uh, you know, to attack our allies and, uh, and and U.S. interests in World War III, and and that makes sense to a lot of Americans. It makes enough sense so that we've been willing to support. Wars like that, okay? But is that the real reason the elites are going into these wars? Uh, no, that's not the real reason. You know, the real reason is uh, is uh, uh, is these globalist explanations. The idea that uh, uh, you know that any nation that violates another nation's sovereignty has to be punished, and therefore America is going to be the world policeman on behalf of these supranational institutions, enforcing you know this new globalist world order, and that's why. That's why the Biden administration uh, uh, and uh, and and the European Union and the NATO Alliance, that's why they're in Ukraine. It's because of the uh, uh, of these uh, so we have elites who use nationalist rationalizations to convince the people to try to convince the people yeah, we need to stay and keep staying in Afghanistan forever and forever. Uh, but you can also see a lot of the agenda there, for example, in Afghanistan. I mean, how was it serving our interests to to want to turn afghanistan not not only to quell the taliban okay but we were we were trying to turn them into a feminist secular democracy okay hmm. and have the values of the globalists imposed on a, a country like afghanistan which is clearly an impossible uh, thing to do and uh you know uh, you know afghanistan is you know it never went through the Enlightenment. It never went through the Renaissance. It didn't have an industrial. And none of the historical things happened to make it uh, that happened in Western Europe to make possible a democratic, secular, feminist democracy. You know, and yet, uh, you know, uh, nation building. You know, the notion of nation bu- uh, building itself is really globalist nation building. You know, building the nation uh, with value systems. Uh, uh, that uh, that are embraced by the globalists. Uh, so you've got a, this is the dilemma, and I think am, Americans are waking up to it, that their leaders, despite what they say to them about their agenda, you know, in these countries where they appeal to our patriotism to get involved in a war, that really they have ulterior motives that have to do with uh, globalist interests that are not the same and are oftentimes are opposed to what U.S. vital national interests are. And, and I think Ukraine is a great example of that. You know, the vital national interest of – national interest of the United States right now is to not get in a nuclear war with Russia that could destroy the United States. That's more important than anything. But our policy is acting like that doesn't matter at all and that we can just keep doing and pushing and, and, uh, and, and why. You know, and it's because American national interests are not first and foremost in Ukraine. It's the globalist agenda. You know, Russia's got to be punished for trying to protect its national interest. What it perceives as its national interests and its empire building in, in Ukraine. And, uh, and they've got to be brought to heel. And, uh, and, and, uh,
0: and what is the solution, though, to just stay out of the way and let them, uh, is a the solution let them do whatever they want to do with Ukraine and we do nothing? Is that the solution?
1: Well, in the end, we may not be able to have any control. But my solution, you know, what I think we should do, you know, uh, Bi- Biden, I think, should, uh, uh, should mobilize U.S. nuclear forces and put them at least on DEFCON 3, right? Uh, even though Putin put his nuclear forces on alert back on February 27th, okay? You know, historically, whenever the Russians have done that, we increase, we mobilize our forces so that they're in a more survivable posture. You know, we have no choice. We're supposed to do that because we don't want them to be able to do nuclear Pearl Harbor on us. But the Biden administration has broken precedent and has left our forces at DEFCON 5, which is the lowest readiness level. And they're saying, well, we don't see any evidence that the Russians have really mobilized their forces, which is a lie because there's actually all kinds of evidence that Putin has mobilized those forces. And uh, and those forces actually don't even have to be all that mobilized because the Russian strategic forces are designed to make a surprise attack 24-7, all the time. They're on a condition called constant combat readiness. And uh, and so when conditions exist where Russia has an, may have a reason to launch a surprise nuclear attack, we need to mobilize our forces to a survivable posture. So one of the first things I would do is I would mobilize those forces, go at least to DEFCON 3 so that it would make it harder for them to do a nuclear Pearl Harbor. You know, we're offering, they're next to them right now. And then I would immediately inform Putin and say... We're mobilizing our forces. You've left us no choice. We've got to do it because you mo- mobilized your forces, and we've exercised great patience. You know, we've been waiting for you to come down with, uh, with your forces, but you haven't. So uh, we're not planning to attack you, but you've left us no choice, okay? And uh, neither of us wants to have a nuclear world war. Uh, you know, so let's try to eliminate the, the problem and negotiate a peace in Ukraine right now, uh, and we and, and and I'm willing to negotiate with you on the basis of the uh, peace treaty that you had offered to the United States and NATO Europe before you invaded Ukraine, let's go back and we'll negotiate. I'm not going to say that we're going to give you all your points, but there are many points in that peace treaty that are just as much in our interests as they are in NATO's interests, excuse me, in Russia's interests. Uh, uh, for example, you know, not, not bringing Ukraine into NATO, you know, uh, you know, yes, we're gonna we're gonna give you that. We're not going to expand NATO further eastward. So all these partnership for peace countries that are, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kurdistan, Southeast Asia, you know, uh, uh, all these uh, countries that are in on the on the way to becoming NATO members, you know, because they're in the partnership for peace, well, we're gonna give we're gonna give you that. Those are examples of of, of things that I would readily agree to in, in the treaty. So there's a lot that could be uh, could could be given up. And uh, uh, and uh, I would try to use the negotiations beyond achieving peace in Ukraine. Uh, I would try to ne- use the negotiations uh, to hit the reset button with the relations with Russia, you know, because uh, our real objective should be to split the Russian-Chinese alliance. You know, we face the most formidable block of military and economic power that we've ever faced in our history— this new axis that comprises not just Russia and China, uh, United, but North Korea and Iran, too. They're all part of this anti-Western bloc. And I don't think we can win a new Cold War or a World War III against that block of power. They have uh, – not only do they have the economic and military advantages, but they have the advantage of political will. These are the totalitarian and authoritarian states. They're, they've been willing to sacrifice millions of their own people – building socialism, they would be willing to sacrifice far many more people than we would to win a World War III against us. We don't want to get into that situation. So we need to, we need to, we need to split that Russian-Chinese alliance as a way of pulling the world, whole world back from the edge of, of a war and turn it into a new Cold War, a competition that's economic and diplomatic and political, not a military confrontation and so i would use the negotiations over ukraine to try to hit the reset button with russia and make them at least neutral okay in the new cold war with china or even a strategic partner because i think putin i think putin was willing to do that during the trump administration you know i think putin knows that in the long run china is a bigger threat to russia than the west and that he's better putin off putin knows that i think he knows that i think it's obvious you know when you when you look at World what's War IV. What's obvious exactly? That- well, the, what's obvious is that Russia has a shared border with China, mm-hmm. has a diminishing population and a diminishing economy. China is greedy for the natural resources, including in Siberia and, and territory. I think Putin knows that the Russians are chess players, you know, that after World War Three, suppose there is a World War Three and they defeat us, okay? There's going to be a World War Four, and that's going to be between the new axis, you know, Russia and China will confront each other in that World War IV. And I don't think Putin wants that. I think he'd rather he'd rather be a strategic partner with the West and avoid both a World War III and a World War IV if possible uh, if he could hit that reset button and have us as a partner to protect Russia against China. And I think Putin, all through the Trump administration, was waiting for Trump to hit the reset button. That was their plan. That was what General Flynn was advising before he got... You know, uh, got fired over over that nonsense, and uh, 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 you know, but Trump was not ever in a position politically where he could make it happen. The Democrat Party, you know, made it impossible for President Trump to do this, to take this step that was vital to our national security, to try to hit the reset button with Russia. You know, they're accusing him of being Putin's puppet, and uh, and 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 and, uh, and, uh, uh, and and it wasn't politically possible for him to do it. That, uh, but we could do it if we were, now if we were negotiating over Ukraine uh, uh, you know we'd try to protect Ukrainian interests you know as much as as much as we could it helps that that the Ukraine apparently has been prevailing in a lot of these areas you know I don't think that we're going to be able to get uh, you know the Donbass back uh, any areas that the Russians actually control you know Ukraine might have to resign itself to becoming a rump state. And in the long run, you know, Ukraine, it may not be possible to save Ukraine at all, you know, because Russia is going to consider it a vital geostrategic interest of its. But at least temporarily, you know, uh, uh, you know in, uh, uh, at, least, at least temporarily, uh, because Ukraine has had good fortune in the war, you know, uh, we would have been able to buy some time for Ukraine. But my concern is not Ukraine. You know, America has no vital interest in Ukraine except avoiding a nuclear war with Russia and gaining and, – and if we can turn lemons into lemonade and gain a strategic partnership with Russia, our vital interest is avoiding a nuclear war with Russia and getting them to be a neutral or a strategic partner in the new Cold War with China so that we can prevail in the new Cold War with China or World War III if that becomes necessary. And that's, uh, that's what I would do. And I think people would be surprised that, despite all of the, the rhetoric and all the rest, uh, all the angst over over the Ukraine war, I think uh, we might be pleasantly surprised at how quickly, you know, Russia is willing to, and they maybe might even be willing to make temporary, very significant concessions over, over Ukraine in order to have that strategic partnership with the West, so that they're not in a, a doomed partnership with China. A partnership with China that's ultimately going to doom Russia even if they win World War III, because they won't probably win World War IV against China. And by the way, that's why China is rapidly building up its nuclear forces. You know, Right now, China needs Russia because Russia is the dominant nuclear power in the world by far. But China is building up nuclear capabilities so that by or before 2030, they will be a nuclear challenge to Russia. Those nuclear weapons, I think, are aimed... They are aimed at us, but I think China is thinking about World War IV, too.
2: Is Russia helping China build nuclear weapons or giving them any supplies?
1: They have been. The the whole – and this is one of the reasons I think we'd be able to do a deal with Putin because I think he's – Russia, not just Putin, uh, they're probably disappointed in in what they've gotten back from China because uh, China went from pretty much a militarily backward – Country, you know, that we weren't all that concerned about. Uh, But in a couple of decades, they've been built into a peer competitor with the United States, both with conventional forces, modern Navy, modern Army, modern Air Force. And now they've got, uh, you know, modern nuclear weapon systems. And all of this has been built on technology that's been stolen from the United States, but also technology that they've gotten from Russia. In fact, some of the most important stuff is Russian-supplied technology for both conventional and nuclear forces. A great example is the the new ICBM, the DF-41 ICBM, which is a a MIRV ICBM. It'll carry 10 warheads. It looks a lot like Russia's SS-18 in terms of it being a MIRV warhead. It's a first-strike weapon, highly accurate, but unlike the SS-18, it's mobile. It's actually a mobile missile, mm-hmm. which makes it even better for a surprise attack. And that's all built on Russian technology. and uh, uh, the Russians have got some things back from the strategic partnership, but uh, the relationship has been disproportionately beneficial to China. you know, The Chinese have been cheap partners. you know they have uh, what what Russia has built them into a world-class competitor that could arguably win World War III against the United States. And Russia has, uh, you know, the economic benefits they've gotten from that relationship are are, uh, you know, not nearly as impressive as I, I think as the Russians would like, and they know that these capabilities will eventually be turned against themselves.
2: PBD, how are you processing? I mean, let me just recap what he just said, and I, I, maybe I got it. you just went from World War Three potentially Russia with China as an ally taking out the United States, the West, and then somehow got right from there to already world war four russia versus china the remnants of who wins that <laughs> i got that part and then initially before that we talked about globalism and it, pat initiated the entire conversation with what's changed since three weeks ago well the world economic forum was just held in davos switzerland uh if there's anything that that i took from that is that the eu is getting closer and stronger. They used to be called the the Russian House in Davos. They changed the name to the Russian War Crimes House located in Davos. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have that picture, but it seems like EU is getting stronger. Um, at United States, obviously, proxy war with EU, Ukraine. <laughs> World War Three boom, World War Four is already happening. There's the Russian War Crimes House. I'm just kind of processing all that. How are you? I mean, what's your biggest takeaway so far? We spent almost four hours. Well, with Dr. You, Pry. you
0: said something last time on, on last time's uh, podcast with uh, uh, Doctor Pry is you said you know the difference between America and some of these countries is we don't have to worry about who's on our border. Mm-hmm. We don't Mexico and what is it Canada? What do we got to worry? about? By the way, did you hear about Canada's story yesterday? What uh, Justin Trudeau just announced? The difference is, imagine if U.S. Was border to China, and China keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. What do you think World War Four is going to be? Probably U.S. China. So, I, it, it, what he's saying is not that out of. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: But he's w- saying World War Four would be Russia China. I know. US I agree. But World I War tell
0: 3. you, what I'm more concerned about is is if U.S. if if World War Four <laughs> is China and Russia against everybody. That's what you really got to worry about. I'm it's totally it, it's a much better situation if World War four is China against Russia you don't want World War four to be China and Russia against everybody else you don't want that you want those two guys to if they're gonna if there's gonna be a war that that's better to be them two than anybody else them unite against everybody else but what are we worried about Mexico I mean what's going on with Mexico Wh- who are you worried about Colombia what were you worried about Argentina Brazil Canada you think Justin Trudeau you know, with his aggressive stand he took yesterday to freeze gun sales, we are capping the number of handguns in this country, right? And what he announced—I don't know if you saw what he announced. Did you watch the video yesterday? What he announced—the fact that he stood up there with twenty men standing behind him with masks on, uh, uh, extremely responsible people—and you know what we're going to do is take guns away from people. Like the the, the, the angle he's taken. Do you worry about him attacking you? No. What he's doing is, and America sits there and says, oh, okay, you guys just got weaker. But let me bring it to you on what you're asking. With Trudeau, uh, obviously, I'm sure you're following the San Antonio story very closely. I'm sure you have been following the story closely. What happened with, uh, uh, I want to say Salvador Ramos, right? Am I saying the last time correctly? Ramos, right? And video came out the other day with cops are waiting to go in. We don't have the right tools. And that's led into all this conversation about gun reform and, you know, this one could have been saved. People from both sides have come out and said this could have been prevented from happening. There was many mistakes that was made from the, you know, uh, stand, you know, don't, don't go in yet. How are you handling the conversations that's being ha- had right now about having gun reform? And if we could have any kind of reform, I'm curious. Do you like the way we have it today or any ideas you would have that you would, suggest any kind of reforms from your end
1: well naturally the left and the uh, forces of pro-government that want to diminish our freedoms are focusing on the guns okay and uh, and I think that's completely uh, uh, misplaced Uh, you know the uh, uh, I don't think gun reform uh, uh, would have prevented uh, any of the measures um, even if they confiscated guns from all law-abiding Americans, uh, this person would have come up with some kind of a weapon, you know, to kill children, uh, you know, uh, and and maybe uh, kill even more people, whether it's explosives or, uh, 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 you know, or, you know, black market firearms or machete. Uh, you know, I think the... Uh, The focus needs to be more on mental health. Uh, 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 Tucker Carlson had a good—he—he uh, he ran a tape from Charles Krauthammer, who had been a psychiatrist, and very respected television commentator, but he originally had been a—you a, know—a a, a medical psychiatrist, and that's how he had made his living. And he made the point uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the problem is the way government is handling. People who obviously have mental problems, Uh, you know, they're not institutionalizing them. They're not not bringing them in uh, to uh, when somebody makes a threat, as this person did before they killed people. That ought to trigger. Bring in a person, uh, uh, you know, people should report that to the police, and the police should then take this person and have them mentally evaluated. And if this person is judged by competent psychiatrists to be a threat, they should be kept institutionalized. And the uh, the proclivity of, of 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 the medical bureaucracy to just release dangerous people has got to be reversed as well, you know. Uh, the the bias should be uh, that uh, you know unless you are yourself willing to maybe uh, accept legal consequences for letting go somebody who later kills people, uh, you know, uh, so that so that you're not scot free if you're a psychiatrist and you say okay. Uh, I'm, I'm letting this person out on the streets and then you have, you're not at legal risk at all yourself. Uh, you know, that's just encouraging, emptying out the psychiatric hospitals. Uh, you know, that's the direction that we need to be able to take. The The left wants to pre- protect the privacy rights of these people more than the lives of children, you know, and they would prefer to blame the boogeyman of guns when the real boogeyman is these, the small, very small percentage of 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 mentally ill and evil people, you know, uh, who are being protected by the left, basically through privacy laws and by tying the hands of both the police and psychiatric institutions, and putting allowing so many people of these people that we don't keep institutionalized anymore because it costs money, you know, and it's cheaper to let them go off and become homeless and become dangers to uh, to society. You know, it's the, it's the policies of the left and, you know, conservatives are always fighting on the defensive, being put on the back foot by saying, uh, you know, over the gun rights argument when the real argument should be, uh, you know, over uh, mental health policy and how do we treat, you know, this, this, this portion of the population. Also, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, we, we ought to be more aggressive in protecting our children, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know there ought to be in every elementary school and public school you know an officer maybe a retired cop uh, you know uh, 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 you know armed uh, or the principal should be armed or a parent uh, you know uh, who is trained in the use of firearms ought to be uh, uh, vigilantly protecting these schools where their own children are located uh, you know to, on a on a volunteer basis uh we also need to think about more seriously about uh about just the architectural security of these uh of of, of these schools uh you know uh so many windows you know that uh and and multiple entrances that people can get uh, that people can get into uh you know the schools ought to be designed with safety doors for example once that door is secured you know you'd need a you you, uh, you need should need hours to get through it. You shouldn't be able to just walk in. Uh, so there are a lot of practical things we can do. Are you period.
0: for background checks or no?
1: Uh, background checks uh, certainly. Yeah.
0: Okay. Are you for them getting rid of uh, um, uh, the, the what do you call it? Uh, Yesterday, I I posted this on Twitter. If you can go to my Twitter account, I just kind of want to share with this. uh, Last night, I'm really zooming a little bit more so we can see it. Yeah, go a little lower. So Justin Trudeau's video, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. So he says this message here, and I tweeted it out, and I said, why just guns? Nearly 1,900 fatalities last year from car accidents in Canada, while 277 fatalities from guns in the same year. Since you're so concerned about the lives of people, Let's get real tough and ban all cars, right? Because that's seven times the amount of people that died from cars than they did with guns. Sure. So so the solution isn't to just say, well, you know, let's ban all guns. Okay, fine. So his proposal uh, uh, that he proposed is limits on size of magazines. I think it's five rounds. Nobody should have more than five rounds harsher criminal penalties for trafficking guns, fine, a red flag gun gun law, stripping firearm licenses from people involved in domestic violence, okay, that's kind of what he wants to do, then if you go above it, and I kind of want to run this by you as well, go a little higher, so I asked the question, I post post a video that we had with Catalina Lauf if you remember when we talked mm-hmm. about what happened in San Antonio go a little higher go a little higher go a little higher that one right there click on that one so I said okay so if if cuz both sides they're so emotional you you're not going to take away my guns you know you're going to have to go through my M16 if you want to take my gun you can and we how can you be so this and you know and there's no way do you not understand lives were lost so I said okay perfect how would you improve or reform our current gun laws in U.S.? Comment below and like the ones you, you like the most. So I want to kind of read you what some of the people on Twitter said yesterday. Just mm-hmm. kind of get your feel. So first one says, get, to, get the mentally ill people the help they need, kind of like what you just talked about. Make constitutional carry the law in all 50 states. You can tell where that guy leans. Repeal the NFA. I think he wanted to say NRA, but maybe he's saying the NFA. Repeal ATF. Okay, go show more replies so we can see it. Give everyone BB guns. He's trying to be funny. Educating our society first. Fine. Mandatory safety training. Takes a few hours, provides a certificate, and send them home with a locking case for the firearm. Doesn't seem unreasonable to train people who are buying guns. Psych meds equals no firearms. I kind of agree with that one. Keep going lower. Uh, GTA Five go go okay. Well, morality. Let's see what the next. One. First and foremost, I would prohibit big pharma to market directly to consumer. That's a complete different conversation, right? Mental health is the issue, not guns. Goes back to what you're saying. Mental health, uh, not so much. The problem is the ease of accessibility to buy guns, because people with mental health will always be there. So let's find a way to stop these people from acting on their evil thoughts. Okay, six month wait list, that's a long time. Background checks and national register. Uh, this kid planned this for two years. How does that change or stop anything? Good argument, counter argument to him. I would say let's revoke every unconstitutional law in 50 states, D.C. and territories. Let as many people as want to any place in America conceal carry. Murders and Murderers and criminals would soon change their bad habits. What do you think about that? That's an interesting take. I don't think we have a gun law issue. I think we have a law uh, enforcement issue. Any form of gun control is unconstitutional. Abolish all forms of gun laws. Anyways, this keeps going on. Somebody said 25 years old, same age as renting a car. Then the argument back is, well, if an 18-year-old can go to war, why shouldn't an 18-year-old be able to carry a gun? Well, then are we more comfortable with an 18-year-old carrying a gun Uh, rather than carrying a beer because alcohol is 21 years old in many states, right? So the part here is both sides seem to be screaming off the top of their lungs on what they want. No one is really willing to sit down and have a conversation about it. Which argument have you seen from the side that is not the conservative side that you've said, I think they do have some kind of a point? Should we increase the age? Should we do a little bit more training before somebody can just buy a gun and leave the place? What should we do to improve uh, uh, some of the f- issues when it, surrounding guns?
1: I agree with the idea that if you're getting psychotru- uh, psycho, uh, uh, drug treatment for psych- psychological problems, uh, you know that that should be uh, uh, automatically prohibitive in terms of gun, gun ownership. I agree with uh, you know people who are resp- guilty of domestic violence, you know, uh, you know that that uh, that that. Uh, uh, that that should restrict you know fire, firearms ownership, uh, and I'm answering your question because you asked me what solutions have come from the left. Okay, that I would agree with, but most solutions from the left I don't agree with. My bias is always to give more freedom to people, not less. I said earlier that I do believe in background checks. I do, providing they're not abused by government, and you always have to suspect government because the inclination in government like, for example, in Washington, D.C., where they abuse background checks in New York City to the point where they are basically rescinding people's Second Amendment rights. And that's not right. Uh, you know, government has proven itself uh, so greedy of power, uh, uh, you know, and and most Americans, the population that is all for gun control and all the rest, they don't understand uh Or maybe they just don't care, uh, you know, that the Second Amendment is there for a reason. It's not for recreation. It's not for sports and hunting. It's because in the Federalist Papers, when we were convinced, when the colonies were convinced to form a federal government with a government in Washington, that we needed an armed citizenry to be the last bastion of defense against tyranny. You know, the the Constitution and the Second Amendment that's in there was written by a revolutionary generation— the first battle of the american revolution was a question of over over firearms you know the british were going to lexington and concord to confiscate the militia's guns and gunpowder and disarm the citizenry so they could be oppressed and the founders knew that so this business about second amendment rights you know being for hunting uh, rights and recreational that's not why we have a second amendment it's because the people and we know this not just in our own american revolution but you know, in every tyranny that has uh, arisen in history, they try to disarm the people and make them sheep, so that they are powerless against the government. So we need to be extremely protective of the uh, of of the power. I think people, I think the gun laws are too restrictive in terms of the types of firearms. Not only should this business about limiting magazines, no, you know, our. I think you can make a, a good practical and constitutional case uh, that Americans should be allowed to own firearms that are equivalent to military-grade firearms because, really? of, yeah, because
2: of that role. Now, do you think America needs more guns or less guns? I think it needs more good guns. You know, what does that mean?
1: I think it needs more guns so that if it became necessary to have a second American Revolution, the average American would stand a chance. You know, the average sporting rifle. Or, or, or shotgun, take it, do a test sometime and take it out to a firing range and see how many rounds you can put through it before it starts jamming up. You'll find that a, a sporting rifle you know, actually uh, can't do sustained fire for very long.
2: But you're saying that Americans need more militaristic-type weapons in average American hands? For yeah. For what I, reason? Uh, to be, fight against the I'm
1: government? In, because I'm increasingly fearful that we're hmm. heading toward a tyranny and uh, and that there's and the the reason the government wants to confiscate guns and restrict gun ownership is because they want to they want to have a tyranny over us. You know, I don't there,
2: There's a faction that says we already have way too many guns here in the United States. I mean, I think we have Tyler, I think I sent you some of these stats. We have 4% of the world's population. What percentage of the world's guns do you think we have? I don't know. I don't Take know. Take a guess. Uh,
1: you know, 50%
2: that's, a, that's exactly right we have 4% of the world's population we have 50% of the world's firearms you say that we should have more and more um, do you militaristic know type guns in Switzerland I, don't, I don't, I'm just stating facts I'm not like I'm yeah. just giving yeah analysis. I, I, I am saying that I'm saying okay. there's I see
1: no reason in a constitutional republic where the people are supposed to be in charge mm-hmm. okay and that we don't belong to the government we're not the property of the government we're supposed to be free, independent people, that we need to have the ability to protect our liberties and protect ourselves from our own government, which has become increasing, increasingly intrusive and oppressive, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, and, 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 the, and the trend to the trend line uh, is, is going away from being a constitutional republic to becoming a tyranny. I don't think we're actually a constitutional republic anymore. I think we're currently a tyranny but we're in the soft phases of tyranny.
2: But isn't the biggest problem right now protecting innocent kids, not so much the government trying to come after you?
1: Well, that's that's certainly the the, the biggest immediate problem because we've had this issue, but I think thinking people have to take a longer view. And and it's uh, in addition to protecting our children, and our children, by the way, I think have to be protected from our government too. You know, I am extremely, of course it's tragic, that those children were killed by that person, by that uh, mentally deranged person. But it wasn't, it wasn't the gun that killed those people. It was the public policy that government has followed that uh, has put lunatics like that out in the street, and government has changed the policies so that, it, so that our, uh, our situation is more dangerous. I'm very concerned about uh, a government— uh, you know that thinks that child abuse, institutionalized child abuse, is okay, and that's what we've got. When you're teaching kindergartners through third graders, for example, about transsexuality, and having conversation uh, and and expecting teachers to educate our children on matters that. When I was growing up, if a stranger in a park came up to you and started talking to you about the things that we have our, encourage our elementary school teachers to talk to our children about, that person would be arrested as a child predator, you know. But we have government sanctioning that and doing that to our children, you know. Is that
2: really that pervasive of a problem? I get that there's some teachers that do that, but is that. Is that sort of a straw man approach that all these... No, it's not, sir. Sir,
1: it is not a straw man. It's being done all across the country. Parents all across the country are up in arms and being arrested in school board meetings for trying to protect their children from child abuse. You know? Uh, By the Uh, way, if
0: if I may, there is way more of that happening than uh, the gun uh, issues that we're having, just so you know. Uh, There is not even 10 times more
2: There's way more what issues?
0: There's way more of the teachers trying to influence kids' way of thinking with what he's talking about with transgenderism. There's a hundred times more of that happening than the issue with guns. But the government's not putting their attention there. The government's going straight to guns. Let's address guns. Let's not think about the long-term ramifications of shifting the way kids think. We're not thinking about that. We're thinking about the finite war, not the infinite war. There's a big difference between a finite war and an infinite war. So, I agree with that part there on uh, what he's saying. Where you're going with this in regards to guns? Can you put up that one thing you put up? By the way, you said four percent and fifty percent. Somebody could say, you know, we are four percent of the world's population, but we are twenty percent of wealth. Okay. Then what do you say about that? Right. right? You know, so so, so we're that those- much
1: we're that much freer than the yep. rest of the world because we, unlike the rest of the world. Uh, you know, own own guns. So the fact that we own 50% of the world's guns, if that's true, I don't know that it is. But let me point out some other things We've got five minutes left. Go ahead. All right. In Switzerland, you know, every adult male, uh, you know, who uh, is part of the Swiss militia who can serve in the military is required to have an automatic uh, military-grade weapon, an assault rifle, a real assault rifle, in their house. Uh, You know, with hundreds of rounds of ammunition so that if they're called up, that's Switzerland, which has some of the uh, lowest uh, gun crime, so-called gun crime, they they, they phrase it, in in the world. In the 19th century, before we had the kind of modern gun laws that we have now where carrying firearms was very commonplace among people, uh, you know, uh, the crime, the murder rates and the rest were much lower than they are today. You know, this does, it isn't the guns that are causing the crime. Uh, you know, it's the it's the culture that's causing the crime, and uh, you know, and I think that a lot of this is correlated with uh, uh, the uh, destruction of our culture because of big government and the role that it plays, which is increasingly, which is increasingly destructive. Yes, we need to be armed to protect ourselves from an increasingly predatory government. You know, that is. Uh, that is frankly not a constitutional republic, as I said before. And why did I say that? That's because in order to have a constitutional republic, you need two, at least two political parties, both political parties. Everybody has to obey the law and respect the Constitution. We, uh, I think we cease to be a constitutional republic, at least from the first year of the Trump administration, with the Democrat Party engaged in uh, uh, unconstitutional and illegal behavior by bringing false charges against President Trump, that he was a Russian agent and that he needed to be invested. They knew that was a lie. They abused the law. They abused the Constitution to undermine a political opponent. And uh, and I think the 2020 elections were also stolen you know, by the Democrat Party. I think people, anybody who hasn't watched 2,000 Mules should watch it. But I think you don't even have to watch that. Just common sense would tell you that a, a guy like Biden, who has – I don't know how many times he ran for president, three to four times, and he never got more than 2 percent of the vote. Now we're expected to believe that he got more votes than any president in American history. The 2020 elections were stolen. so we're many, not- many will tell you that. That's because they – Trump was hated that much. Were people voting against him than voting for him. Yeah. Well, that's what they – that's what they say. But watch 2,000 Mules yeah. and see what happened. We had Dinesh uh, on
0: before. But so, yeah. so, okay, this this article, Rob, Switzerland has one of the highest rates of gun ownership in the world, but little gun-related street crime. So opponents, uh, some opponents of gun control hail it as a place where firearms play a positive role in society. However, Swiss gun uh, culture is unique and guns are more tightly regulated than many assume. Okay, for me, the one part where the right has to use a little bit of, um, I, I don't know how to, from, from my standpoint, there is nothing wrong with requiring a little bit of training. There's nothing wrong with give me a one-day training, two-day training, where I got to get a sign-off, where I got to go to something, where I got to go shoot or have somebody that's teaching me the basics, a former vet or former military I don't know, I think just sitting around and saying, yeah, it's it's not a big deal, it's not this, this. I, I I would much rather have 100% of people that are on non-meds, non-domestic violence, non-mental issues, 100% of adults have a gun or a, a weapon that they are trained to use than have 50% of America that are able to buy guns and they have no experience to have any kind of weapons, you know, training or how to use it. I'd much rather drive training. Uh, my, My idea is to drive training, drive education, drive being in a community to say, do this, be careful with this. When you're making a left turn with a car, Look at this mirror, 10-2, basic stuff that we learned at 16 years old. Those 10-20 basic things to teach somebody with guns that you can also tell them, you know, certain things. I, I think there are some things we can do to improve in that area. Anyways, we ran out of time. This, was, this has been a great podcast. Uh, Dr. Pry, thank you for coming back. Folks, for some of you guys that are with us. I'm hosting a webinar tonight about the market crash. I think, I don't know, 20,000 people have registered for to be a part of it. It'll be at 530. We're going to talk about a lot of different stats and history of what's happened and how to prepare for it. If you haven't yet registered for it, it's a free webinar. To, Tyler, if you can put the link below for people to be a part of it, looking forward to seeing many of you guys there. Who do we have uh, uh, this week? Is uh, is this the only podcast we're doing this week? Or Thursday we're doing
2: with uh, Dr. Ben Carson.
0: Oh, Dr. Ben Carson's here this Thursday. That's not this That's Thursday, Thursday, dude. I don't think that's. I thought that's the twelfth. We're with Tim Ballard. June Tim Ballard okay, yeah. Tim, Tim Ballard is this two weeks Thursday. From now, Tyler. Tim on. Ballard is this Thursday. That's well, a complete that was- different conversation. If you've seen the Nick McKinley podcast that we've done in the past before, this will be a follow with that. Doctor Pry once again, thank you so much for coming out here and speaking with us. And uh, I know the audience loved it. If you like having Doctor Pry on, you want to see him come back again. Give us a sub and uh, give us a thumbs up too. Uh, having Dr. Pran today, but appreciate you for coming out. Truly, this was great, as usual.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye.